OMG, there is so much snow. There is more snow I ha- than I have ever seen on the ground in Portland. So with that, I would like to say welcome to episode 15 of Snowpocalypse. You're projecting, Sam. There's no snow here in Chicago. I should speak more quietly, is what you're saying? I think you're using exclusionary language. I don't have snow at all right now. (laughs) Oh, damn. Sorry. What would you prefer I say instead? Your weather may vary. (laughs) (laughs) Greater than snow? (laughs) Sure. So I'm Coraline Ada Emke, and I'm joined today by the wonderful Jessica Kerr. Thank you, Coraline. And we are also here with Astrid County. Thank you, Jessica. And today our guest is Zuri Hunter. Zuri is a software engineer at Digital Globe, one of the world leaders in providing high earth imagery, data and analysis. While studying computer information systems at the illustrious Howard University, Zuri spent about two years teaching herself Ruby on Rails and participating in hackathons to expand her knowledge and experience. In her spare time, she loves watching American football and playing video games. Hi, Zuri. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. Super, super excited. So high earth imagery, is that like Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and uh, Amsterdam? I'm not sure about that. I must say this. We recently got acquired. So formerly my company was Human Geo. And we did a lot of like geospatial data visualization data and then Digital Globe, which does a lot with satellite imagery and stuff. So it was like a great, you know, fit. So we do more of that. That sounds really cool. Well, before we get too far into that, uh, we like to start the show by uh, asking people about their superhero origin stories. So, Zuri, how did you get into tech? When I first came to Howard, I was a marketing major, and I took my management information systems class. It was like one of the requirements from my major. And I just loved the idea of like tech and how it's being used in businesses and stuff. So I decided to switch my major to computer information systems. And then with that, they had entered the job of programming. And that's when I loved the idea of like, oh, I could be creative and, you know, build stuff with my knowledge and stuff. So um, I decided from that point on that I wanted to like at least be web development, software development. But I knew my, with my major information systems, it wasn't like geared towards that. So on the side, I was picking up um, my skills. We said in the intro that you spent a couple of years learning Ruby on Rails. What attracted you to that platform? Ruby is really easy to read. <laughs> Um, when I was in Java programming, I wasn't like a fan of Java syntax and it's like super, super hard. But then when I was like doing web authoring tools and then like attending women who code meetups in DC, they had opened up line of Ruby on Rails and the founder at the time, Kaylin, she was like, Hey, would you like to run this meetup for us? Even though I was a complete newbie to it. So I was like, yeah, let's go for it. From there, I've been hooked. It's a lot easier to pick up for me, like around that time. And a lot easier to create prototypes for hackathons. I must emphasize that. <laughs> like, it's so fast. Because like at the NFL hackathon, I was doing an app in Ionic. And that took forever trying to like build up the base interface behind it. And like Rails is just quick. Do commands and boom, you got something working. Do you remember what your first Rails app was? Yes, I do. It was a Pinterest demo. So when we first launched Ruby on Rails for DC at Women Who Code, I think, I hope I didn't like butcher his name, Matan Griffel, on our one month, he gave us a discount for the ladies to go through his course of one month Rails. And that was basically making a Pinterest app going from like design using Bootstrap all the way up to deployment using Heroku. So that was like my first Ruby on Rails app right there. I have done that, so I know exactly what you're talking about. That's so awesome. Yeah, his documentation is so good. Like, as I, like, 
you know, continue down the road. And I look back at it. I'm like, I appreciate this so much. <laughs> so Zuri, when did you first start participating in hackathons? Because I know that you had talked about the fact that you changed your major. But when was your first hackathon after you decided that you were going to be interested in learning how to program? So my first hackathon, fun fact, I didn't really participate in. I just, you know, came as a spectator. But my professor in the summer of 2013, Professor Henley, he was pushing me to go to these events. And he's like, you don't have to do anything because I'm a really shy person. So he's like, you don't have to do anything. Just come just see what people are working on. You don't have to join the team. Just show up. So um, that summer I attended my first hackathon. It was Angel Hack. I don't think I had a theme at the time, but I just came went to 1776 in Washington, D.C. and just saw like greatness in the room with people working on their projects. Uh, I think at the time, Google Glasses were hot. <laughs> so I was able to like touch and play around with like, Google Glasses for the first time. And I just was able to see like, oh, no one, there's no pressure, honestly. It's just everyone's relaxed doing things that they love. So that was like my first hackathon. And after spectating on the side, I was doing like Android development tutorials. And then, like, Pinky and my professor for help when I was coming across errors. But I didn't, like, participate until, like, my second hackathon. You sound really enamored of hackathons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, if you have an idea, you get to work on it. And then on top of it, it is a perfect opportunity to work on, like, new technologies that you ever wanted to work on. The last hackathon I went to recently was in November. And it's for this new group called Color Coded. I had this idea for the August. But um, it stemmed back from my college years, and I wanted to use React Native because, like, at my current job, we're using React for our front end. So I was like, okay, let's, you know, try React Native. Of course, it was really hard just trying to get in, breaking into that, but it was perfect opportunity for me to, like, use a new tool at the hackathon. I actually ran a hackathon back in January. The way we set it up was not like a typical hackathon in that it was not competitive. We had five or six different nonprofit organizations, and we built teams, um, grabbing people for the teams based on there. We try to have a mix of different experience levels and different technologies and like front-end people and back-end people and whatever. The main difference there in that hackathon was that it was non-competitive and we, we wanted it to be non-competitive so it wouldn't be so intimidating for new people. Do you find the competitive aspect of hackathons appealing or do you think it takes something away? From a newcomer perspective, it takes away. From the event because now newcomer is feeling pressured. Like for me, whenever I get sense a competitive vibe, I've, I'm feeling pressured that like, oh, I have to make sure I know everything. If I come across an error, like, you know, I have to fix it on the spot. That kind of takes away from like the experience. But I'm assuming once like a newcomer gets more experience or get more comfortable and like who they are with their skills, like how I am right now, I guess like you don't really pay too much attention to the competitive in that aspect. Just more of like, okay, I just want to have fun using this new technology. I just want to have fun meeting with people who have the same interests as me. But um, for newbies, especially when I first started out, the competitiveness did take away from like wanting to be a part of these hackathons. That would take away from it for me as an experienced developer as well. <laughs> I mean, I was just saying in the chat that I've never found hackathons appealing for a variety of reasons. Like, you know, I don't do well when I don't sleep, right? So the yeah. idea of spending a weekend is kind of unappealing. And then like, even if I wanted to, I have a kid, so I can't really schedule an entire weekend in town, but not at home. 
And yeah, then like just the idea of having a competitive event and working on something where your whole goal is to like slap it together as fast as you can is like really at odds with my preferred mode of like taking your time and doing TDD and trying to get things right as you go. So like for all of those reasons, I've never been really interested in hackathons. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about how great they are. (laughs) And there's some aspects of this I hadn't considered. That's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, the Zogi Rod Beer are going to be like, you know, at excellent run hackathons and they're going to be like really, really bad hackathons. But it's more of like the audience that comes to those things and it's what makes it. But I am 100% with you. I can't work straight through. Like I can't do a full 24 hours of coding. I, I need a break and sleep. <laughs> I think <laughs> I we think all do. Right, right. And uh, like some people, they're built like that. And some people like me are not. And um, the hackathon that like really put me on the spot and actually helped me get my gig that I'm at today, the Angel Hack um, Capital One Hackathon. I did take a break during that. Like, I'm sorry, like my team knows me very well. <laughs> but I took a break and took that. I said, look, guys, I'm seated early in the morning. I need to take this break. But I think like people need to understand like it's okay to dip off or take some time to yourself while in the midst of these events because coding is a lot of mental power right there and you do need rest. I guess fear of missing out could keep you awake for a while, right? Yeah. And then for some people, like fear of like not making that last extra effort so they can like win something like prize money is some sort. Right. Depends on people and what drives them. So you just said something interesting about the hackathon that got you your gig. And that's another thing that I wanted to, to ask you about was this idea of using a hackathon to sort of break into the field and launch your career. You want to get into that? Yeah, sure. I'll get into that. The funny thing is, like, I never saw this coming. <laughs> like, with me doing a hackathon, I didn't see this coming at all. Like, me actually being offered to, like, interview at my current company and actually getting an offer. Like, I was just simply going to these events trying to meet people, network, as well as expand my skills and understand how it is to work in a tech environment. Because that was going to be the very closest thing I can get to in working in a tech environment was at these hackathons. So it was like a real huge shocker and a blessing at the same time to, you know, have someone um, come up to me after my team winning. And it's like, hey, is anyone looking to, you know, get a job? But um, I do sometimes uh, try to recommend newbies when they asked me, like, you know, how did you get to where you are? I was like, go to meetups in the field that you're interested in. Talk to the people. Like, <laughs> you will learn an awful lot. And they'll get to see, like, a name the face and see that you know what you're doing and that you have a huge high interest in it. Because honestly, I feel like companies are looking for people who are really energetic and have a high interest in, like, the tools that they use. So it's really, really helpful. And hackathons are, like, a perfect way to show that. So I tell them also the 10 hackathons, regardless if you don't feel like you're ready or not. Because I tell you, like, I was trying to get out of it with my professor when he was trying to tell me to come out to these hackathons. And so he said, look, just show up. You don't have to do anything. And I was like, okay, because I was not 100% confident in my skill, especially in Java, back then to at least participate in a team. But when you show up and you get comfortable, you realize, hey, this is not as bad or this is not as intimidating. You mentioned that your team knows you. Did you show up to that particular hackathon as a full team? Yes, actually, yes. I'm not sure if it was my professor or it was my classmate who sent the email out about the hackathon and like bought my ticket. And we all was like, okay, uh, if we don't find anything, like any like teams that we we're interested in, we could all like formulate together. And that ended up happening after the pitching session. 
yeah, we just like decided to like stick together on this one. What's a pitching session? So what they do at the beginning of hackathons is people who have ideals, they'll like pitch it to the audience and say like, hey, this is my ideal. These are the tech stack I'm interested in working with, or these are the type of people I'm looking for. And this is what I do. So for the Color Code Hackathon, the idea was basically an app that allows you to like record like sessions with your friends where you freestyle over like popular hip hop beats. We used to do this in college all the time when we have an album listening party. And afterwards, somebody would like pop in some instrumentals and someone would drop a verse and we all go in like a circle with like amazing freestyles. So I wanted to like create an app that makes it a lot easier to have that process as well as record it and share it with your friends. When I was pitching that idea, I also explained to them like, hey, I'm like a full stack developer, but these are the tools I'm interested in working with, like React. So if you're fluent with React, that's great. If you have some experience with audio engineering, that's also a plus too. And I also would like to have a designer. And that's what essentially is being covered within um, the pitching sessions I had. So uh, we've talked on the show uh, in previous episodes about uh, signaling behaviors. And I'm wondering, as somebody who is new to the field or maybe like me is just new to the idea of hackathons, um, what are some signals that I should be looking for to decide whether a hackathon is going to be friendly or uber competitive or, or what? I like to judge hackathons on whether it's going to be friendly or not based off the type of people who show up. What I try to do is like talk to the people that are there that show up and ask them, like, hey, what do you do? What brings you here? So you get an idea of like, you know, okay, this is might be a friendly environment. Who knows that might be my future teammate or stuff like that. And then also um, take into account the environment that they bring. When I say environment, I mean the setting. Is it comfortable for you to sit down and, you know, start coding? Is there like access to the bathroom? Is there a whole bunch of water? Is there a whole bunch of food? Like those stuff really make or break hackathons and um, actually contribute to the vibe of hackathons. So also like do look out for those things. But the key thing is to talk to the people that are there. And if you're having like an iffy vibe, like, okay, this person is very standoffish or this source is like really open and welcoming and is very excited for this. I think that would be like a good indicator of whether you want to be like still participate in this hackathon or not. Oh, and also do talk to the coordinators who put together the hackathon because that can also read like whether this is going to be a good experience or not. That's interesting. I was maybe wondering if there were signals I could look for before I went to decide if I wanted to go, but it hadn't occurred to me that you could show up and if you're not having a good time, you can leave. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, not if you had paid for a spot for hackathon, I'm sure you would want to get your money's worth. But like, there's events where you don't really have to pay for money; you just show up, and you can be like, "All right, I'm not feeling this. I'm about to dip." And see, you're not being held there against your will. Like, you go and show up and dip. Like, you don't have to stay for the entire thing. The idea of paying to participate in a hackathon seems really strange to me. <laughs> I get, I'm assuming like the reason why some people pay, like I paid for like numerous hackathons. Actually, I, I would like to say the most expensive. Well, I wouldn't say the most expensive because like the only reason why it was expensive for me was because I had to fly out to there. But I, I'm assuming that like the cost for this probably goes towards the food and like getting the area and everything. But um, I think the ones that you do pay for, you do get better quality food <laughs> and really good Wi-Fi. Really, really good Wi-Fi. <laughs> It actually makes me feel a little better if I pay for it, because if I'm not paying for it, who's getting the benefit? You know, who am I there for? Yeah, right. Exactly. That is also um, something to think about as well. 
most cases, if I'm not mistaken, the hackathons that I've seen that were free are mainly like geared towards helping out nonprofits mm-hmm. or um, up and coming ideas. So like, for example, Code for DC hackathon, which was, if I'm not mistaken, in either March or April of last year, um, that was a free hackathon, but that was geared towards building tools and technologies to help the communities within DC. So you do have to like take into account like, okay, if it's a free one, who am I servicing and like right. whatnot? And if it's not a free one, like, okay, hope there's like great quality food and great quality like area and, and settings. So Zuri, you had mentioned before that you're kind of a shy person, but you've also talked about, you know, pitching at hackathons and walking around and talking to people. So what is your advice to other people who would say that they're shy and are too freaked out to go to these hackathons and maybe start chatting up people to see if they want to be there? I feel like for me, what really contributed me to like not opening up, not willing to pitch was that I was, I'm a very critical person on myself. Like I'm very, very, very critical. Like everything has to be 100% perfect before I even say anything. So, uh, or do anything. So at the time when I was first starting out, I didn't think my skills was good enough. I didn't think my ideas were actually appealing and that people would like it. So that's what prevented me from like going around, talking to people and like, you know, actually doing pitches and stuff like that. So with that, with me seeing that in myself, I was like, okay, this is a problem. I need to boost up my confidence. That might be a problem for like other people why they're shy or like, you know, kind of scared to go in and um, really put themselves out there at these events. It's probably because they don't have like, you know, strong confidence. And um, my advice to those, like, if you have that feeling, do what you need to do to get more confident. For me, I felt like I was a strong Ruby on Rails. So I did a whole bunch of Ruby on Rails tutorials, went to a whole bunch of Ruby on Rails meetups and try to get well versed in the subject as I can. And then when I went to these events, I was like, okay, I know what I'm talking about. I understand what I'm talking about. And I feel like I can contribute more beyond what I'm talking about. That would be one of the advice I would give people who are, who are like, you know, kind of shy like me because if they like lack in confidence, but it's just like anything with growing, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be outside your shell, but you have to be willing to grow. And that's what putting yourself out there at these hackathons is going to require you to do, to grow and be confident and network and learn new things. So I knew that I wanted to grow in my scale. So I had to like really, really push myself, even though I'm definitely shy and don't really like talking to people. But I'm amazed at like, you know, the amazing people I've come across so far. I would also like to suggest to our listeners, if they haven't tried this, that maybe they work up to the hackathon by going to a few uh, local user group meetups. Because uh, it, first off, it gets you sort of used to being around the kind of people who show up for voluntary tech events. Uh, it's a lower investment thing because you're going for maybe a couple of hours in an evening. And even if you don't wind up going to hackathons after that, you uh, get some good exposure to user groups, which are one of the most valuable resources we have to keep growing and uh, and learning in our field. Yeah, that's a really good advice. And that's exactly how I started out. <laughs> cool. Yeah, Zuri, you said you started by going to Women Who Code DC. Was it helpful to find a group that was targeted for women? Oh, my God. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I can't stress how, like, actually, if it wasn't for, like, them for keeping me in there, maintaining my confidence, I wouldn't be in this industry. Like, point blank. Like, I would probably give up a long time ago. Something about it just make you feel comfortable. You can ask a whole bunch of questions. And, like, some unique experiences that, you know, women go through is sometimes something that men don't go through all the time. And you could talk about that and relate that with women. And Women Who Code Meetup 
in DC. Like it was like, it's, we've grown to the part where it's very organized and we have like so much content, so much, uh, like talks that has been very, very, very helpful as well as a perfect time, perfect, uh, group to meet, come across like mentors or, um, people you can like ask questions with about whatever technology or whatever thing, like entrepreneurship too. Cause I definitely went, um, when my team won for the Angel Hack Capital One Hackathon, I had Denny, who was a part of the Women Who Code um, DC meetup that I went to in regards to, you know, hey, what are the next steps I should do in this, you know, this route and trying to build this business up with my team? And she gave some very good, insightful experience and advice on that. So Women Who Code, like groups like that really do help a lot. Zuri, you mentioned winning that hackathon, opening the door to a job opportunity for you. Do you want to talk about that? Hey, it was in August, that hackathon, um, after my team had won, uh, which was like really, really exciting. Um, Aaron Gessman, he had came up to my team. Mind you, this was like the team of three. There was three of us. He had came up to our team and had asked like, hey, is anyone looking for a job? Actually, first, he really, really loved the front-end aspect of our project. Like, he really was, like, harped on that more than anything else. And then asked if anyone was looking. At the time, I was temping at this temp agency. So I was doing, like, property management work. And it was, like, definitely something that I didn't want to do. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, sure. I have no other choice. I'm trying to get into this industry. So I took down his email. And it took a minute before I applied. I I think the reason why was because I wanted to have my personal website up before I applied. So like, it'll give like whoever who's looking at my resume something to look at. Like, oh, this is her website. Mm, it's pretty nice. You know, I, I see she knows her stuff. Like she built it herself. I, a month later, I applied and like had a phone interview. And then next week called in for like an in-person interview. And I think it was two weeks later, I was offered a position here as a technologist at the Human Geo. And that was like very, very exciting because I, I kid you not, I've been, be prior to that, I've been like applying to a lot of companies and every single one of them, A, you don't have enough experience or, you know, we don't have like, we're, we're looking for senior developers or mid-level developers. You don't have a computer science degree, you know, it's information systems. Your, your projects were are not enough for us to gauge on whether we like, you know, should come and bring you in for interview. Like I had a lot of no's and it was been very discouraging, very, very discouraging. But for every no, well, every million no's or some sort, someone's going to say yes. And the human geo said yes to me. So I was really, 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 really excited and happy and more of a blessing than anything else. You only need one yes. Zuri, um, what did they do when you got hired to bring you up to speed? Because you were very junior and you had very limited experience. So what did they do to kind of help you develop your skills and really get productive as quickly as possible? They brought me on board, introduced me to everyone as well as my team and my team manager. And my team manager, uh, team lead, more like it, basically said, yeah, so we're going to have you do work on the front end aspect of your application. And we're going to have you paired up with um, a senior dev. And from there, I was like learning and working with the senior developer who was really, really good. Rob, he's like really, really, really good in like front ends of especially Angular. Like I'm amazed. And I learned a lot from him. So it was more of like, you know, working. I wasn't alone. I wasn't thrown out into like the water and said, float. <laughs> but they paired me up with this thing and had me like learn from there. 
And also the first two weeks they gave me time to like do some reading on Angular JS documentation because that's what we were working on. So first do reading on that and then work with the senior developer and then learn from him. That's great. I wish more companies were uh, willing to take what they perceive to be a risk and hire and mentor more juniors because, I mean, that's the only way that anybody is ever going to get mids and seniors, right? Right, exactly. You're so right about that. And then um, also it's kind of a shocker too because at the time when I joined, I think I was like employee number 63, 64. So we're a small company. And, you know, most small companies, you have everyone doing everything and no one has time for mentoring or like helping junior devs along the way. So it was really, really good that I was able to have that opportunity to have a senior developer work with me as well as like guide me on what I need to do on the front end aspect for our project. How long have you been there now? Uh, I just reached a year in October. Congratulations. Thank you. And I must say, I've grown a lot. Like, I've, like, really grown a lot in my skills. I mean, when I first started off, like, I was, like, kind of scared to work with, like, the command line and everything. But then, like, now I'm just, oh, yeah, I'm going to make this change in this file in Vim. And, like, I'll have no problem with it. I'm, like, like, completely comfortable. So this is amazing, like, how I went from, like, zero to 100. (laughs) Vim does have that property of making you feel really smart when you know how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I definitely never unlocked that level of Vim. Vim just makes me feel really stupid all the time. (laughs) Yeah, it does that too. I don't know how I ever used VI without Git, because with Git, at least I can get back to a history point, right? Right. right. (laughs) Right. And it's totally possible to just accidentally wipe things out in VI. Although really... The hardest part is just exiting. Yes. Right. That's like the story of my first few weeks on my first job as a developer where I learned VI and then I was like, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? Oh my God. Oh my God. Just close the terminal window. It'll be fine. <laughs> oh my God. You're so right. Cause I definitely did that in the very beginning. <laughs> I was like, screw this. <laughs> yeah. The way that I work in my day to day workflow is that I have, I use Tmux and I have like a Vim window open and it just stays in Vim for hours or days at a time. And then I switch over to another terminal. And so when I pair with other people who work, you know, in a single terminal and they're like, jump in and out of Vim, I'm like, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> there was this wonderful invention. I think it came about in the late 70s, early 80s. Some people call it GUI. It stands for Graphical User Interface. Mm -hmm. And I find that I really enjoy applications that take advantage of this technology, especially for code editing. So something for listeners to kind of check out. If you want to get away from them, check out something with a GUI. And I hope I'm saying that right. (laughs) No, everything was perfect in 1975, and that is the way it will be forever. (laughs) (laughs) So Zeri, it sounds like there were a lot of growth opportunities for you early on in your job. Um, do you still find that you have a lot of opportunities for learning and growing? And if so, what are some of the things you're interested in developing some skill in? Yeah, there's a lot of growing and learning on the job right now, and I still have a lot more to go. As far as like skills, I'm now on like backend DevOps type stuff. So um, one of the things that my company um, is pushing for is for us to get our Amazon Web Services certificate, specifically uh, the Certified Solutions Architect certificate. They bought us accounts for um, Linux Academy, and I've been using that as a way to um, study for the certificate. 
hopefully, I don't know, like check back with me in March. Hopefully, like by then, I'll like get my AWS cert from there. But that's like one of the things that I'm focusing on for this new year. It's getting my certification in that and being proficient. Yeah, AWS. So yeah, I think it's a really, really popular thing going on right now. Mm -hmm. But we use it a lot in our in our projects. Like we use it an awful lot. So it's really helpful. Super useful. Mm -hmm. I think it's cool that you're getting into DevOps and that operational side so early. Yeah, it's just like yeah, going into now year starting year two. Yeah, it's. I'm actually kind of shocked because like when I found I was doing like back Edward, I was like, oh my God, they trust me with that. <laughs> I don't trust myself. <laughs> like for real, I was so shocked. But, and, and you know, it's the funny thing. I thought I was going to be able to keep up. Like I felt like, okay, I maybe I'm not ready for this. Like maybe I'm too dumb for this, but no, like I didn't feel that way the minute I started a project and like, my team lead, like he's like pushing for everyone, like regardless if you don't know the technology, like we're willing to be like help you along the way with it. The first stuff I did was like working with uh Jenkins, which is a continuous delivery tool and integration. Um, did I worked with like creating puppet trips and then like we move on to like getting services in Docker containers and like a little bit on the way that like does kind of interact with like AWS because that creating these like microservices to get sent to AWS. So like it's helpful for us to get an understanding of like, you know, what's going on over there, like on the cloud side. They're really like really trying to mold everyone into a full stack developer, everyone that has a skill set in everything. Like not one person knows one thing. Like everyone knows everything. That's how they want to grow people here. That's really fantastic. That's a lot of stuff for one year. I've never gotten a certificate in anything. Has anyone else here gotten one? Yeah, I did. About 20 years ago, I got a a NetWare 3 certification. I was a certified NetWare engineer. And uh, I stopped using those skills long before I was done paying off the classes. Ouch. Whoa. Wow. Were the classes expensive? Well, I went to a six-month thing at, like, Heald College. So I I think I spent about $4,000 on that stuff. Plus, there were the testing fees as well. Wow. Oh, that's wild. It was not a good choice for me. (laughs) This is why I was surprised to hear that they're encouraging certificates. I mean, maybe this one is a totally like useful guided learning sort of path, but the history of certificates has been pay our company a lot of money so that we will give you a stamp and you Uh will feel important. Yeah. And and the funny thing is like, I was like wondering, because I remember talking to somebody who's like, oh, actually, I was like at an abstractions.io conference. I I met someone who I was talking to them about AWS. And he's like, yeah, I remember when I got the Microsoft one. Can't remember specifically which one. And he was like, you see where that one went, (laughs) see where that one came and how that helped me. But um, it makes me wonder like, okay, will this get obsolete? Like, will we no longer use this technology? But as I'm looking at the history of, like, how uh, cloud services have evolved and how it's moving into, like, a major main thing, I I have a feeling that that may not go away. For any given technology, will this become obsolete? Yes. (laughs) But will the next thing... Will my skills transfer? Yes. 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 And that probably so. So maybe this is a little bit different because I know what you're talking about, Zuri, the Linux Academy, because I used that as well when I was working on a DevOps team. But it's not Amazon who's actually teaching you. It's another provider. And it is really cool because they give you a server. So you get you get an opportunity to learn how 
you can SSH into a server, into a remote server, and actually teach yourself in the way that you'd really be working. So it's not like you're just doing videos and, and then it's not real to you. So it seems like it's a, I don't know, compared to the way that normal certificates work, but it seems like it's a good investment of time to learn a skill that's really transferable because it's not like you won't ever do that again. Like we will always forever be SSHing into servers and making manipulations, always. But um, um, also like I bought a course a long time ago on um, Udemy, uh, which is really, really good. That's how I started off with the free stuff and trying to learn um, Ruby and Rails. But I, Cloud Guru had like a course on AWS certified um, software architect. So I'm going to also use that as well as learning with Linux Academy for my certification. It sounds like you're really excited about all this continuous learning. You're destined for a great career in tech. Thank you. I hope so. I like learning new things. Like I, I don't, I don't want to like be doing something repetitive over and over again. I think with me having uh, my temp job and uh, doing something over and over again is just like really bugged me a lot. And I was like, yeah, I need to be in something where there's, there's always something changing. There's always some new technology out there. Like it keeps my um, mind fresh and ready. Yes, and we can always take what we're doing and do it faster or better. <laughs> but not both. Probably not. <laughs> not at first, anyway. It takes a while to That's make true. it faster and better, but then we can. So, Zuri, before when you were talking about getting your first job, you mentioned that there was a lot of no's that you received. And I just wanted to find out what was it that allowed you to keep going and keep looking for new opportunities and keep participating because a lot of people have talked about how getting all those no's or having a really hard beginning in tech made them discouraged and some people didn't come back for a long time. So what was different for you that kept you in it? I would like to say it was my current tech job. I knew I didn't want to do that and that I really, really truly wanted to be a developer. And I was like, just keep going, just keep at it. And then like with the support of women who code community and like having the members tell me like, listen, you know your stuff. Somebody's going to say yes. Just keep on applying. That's what really kept me going, kept me applying. You need a scared straight program for new developers. <laughs> <laughs> that, no. That's usually called working at a job you hate. That'll do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> that did it for me. That's part, that's a lot of what kept me going uh, as I went back for my uh, bachelor's in computer science was like, I know what happens if I don't do this? Yes, exactly. And you don't want to live life like that at all. So that really kept me going. And that actually brings up another question I had, because I know that in the bio, we said that you have a degree in computer information systems, but you also said that people mentioned you don't have a degree in computer science. So what is the difference between the two? Because I know a lot of people have that question. And why would somebody assume that you can't do the developer job because you don't have the computer science degree. When I did interviews or like when I talked to anybody, I always like always give a quick story of like the difference between information systems and the difference between computer science. Uh, information systems, all business aspect, you're basically at the end of the day being molded or being taught the skills of like how to understand IT and translate it to business terms. And you're basically the medium between the IT people and the business people. Like, that's what an uh, information systems major could up. So 
when I was taking those classes at Howard to become that, I took more business classes than I took of development. Unlike computer science, you're studying the sciences of computers, so you're doing like a whole bunch of math classes. You're doing classes on like how the operating systems are built. You're doing classes on data structures. You're doing classes on algorithms. So it's more technical based and understanding computers and like algorithms and programming as opposed to information systems. You're all about business. So like a good vast majority of my classes um, that I took that wasn't like computer science related or computer information systems related was like uh, manager economics, accounting one and two, supply chain management and operations. There was a lot of classes in that. So I had to take time aside and study like programming, studying Groovy and studying um, web development in order to at least somewhat keep up with what the computer science people are doing. Hmm. So I would, I would argue it, though that the, mm-hmm. those skills are more relevant than algorithms, depending on the job you have. But for most development jobs, especially if you're a web developer, algorithms aren't going to help you as much as being able to talk to a business person and being able to understand what stakeholders are asking you for. Yes. Yes. I see it in like our current projects now, like how that really plays a huge role. Like how you're able to, all right, take whatever the uh, the system requirements, the functional requirements that the, the client is asking you for, and how do you translate that into, you know, tech related stuff I'm like how to like tell the developers like these are the things and tools and tech stack that you're going to need to build the stuff so we can satisfy one of the user stories that we degenerated from receiving these requirements. So um I must say like with me having an information systems major and like being able to understand the business aspect, I'm able to have a clear vision of like uh, how the goals and how the project goals are being translated from the business aspect, design, development production like i'm able to see how that stuff is being built and generated so that's what i like to tell people in regards to like you know difference between information systems and um, computer science and also you can see it when it comes to um pitching because you know people like the computer science people like they don't really know too much of like the business aspect as much unless they did like some side reading and stuff like that when you have a business person, like they're able to translate that and help like the masses who don't know anything or don't know much about like the computer technical aspect, they'll be able to translate it and understand like what's going on. I'm sorry, what was the second question? The second part to that question? Uh, the second part was, you know, why would you not having that computer science degree make someone think that you couldn't be a developer? Arrogance. <laughs> Elitism. <laughs> I have a computer science degree. Well, not me, but hypothetical hiring manager. And I'm good. Therefore, good people have a computer science degree. And I had to suffer for this computer science degree by taking classes in horrible languages. And if you haven't, you're not (laughs) worthwhile. (laughs) How will I even communicate with someone who doesn't have my math experience? I think some of that ties into culture fit, too, which is like the most evil, the most evil thing in the world is hiring for culture fit because... When you hire for culture fit, you're like, I want four more Eric's on this team. And you end up with these homogenous teams that only know how to solve the problems of Eric's and are really imbalanced and don't take advantage of the wealth of different experiences that people have. And Zuri, um, we haven't really mentioned this, but you're a woman of color. Do you think that influenced some of the no's that you got? Oh, Lord, I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know. Honestly, I really don't know if that influenced the nose. Like, as some people, like, I haven't even got past the part of, like, getting a phone call, like, back then. Back then, I was, like, 
sent in my email with my resume and stuff like that and immediately responded back with, no, we don't, you don't have the experience and stuff. I do have my university on there, of course. And I, and that's my university, Howard University is a historically black college. And then some the recruiters or whoever knows that, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I generally don't know if that like played a huge role or anything. It would suck if it did. You know, I think there's, I've seen this at some places where they want to hire people from the same list of schools that they're comfortable hiring from. And I think they're just being lazy in some senses and piggybacking off strict admissions process. So that pretty much everyone who goes to that school is pretty smart because they got in. And has the appropriate class background. Yes. And and then the other consequence is, right, they can talk to them. They have shared experiences. They have that class background, that general uniformity. So that's that's a negative. And it takes more effort to hire from colleges that don't have really strict admissions processes. And I think this probably applies to boot camps, too. Sometimes their, their graduates are awesome because their admissions process is tricky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or their tuition is prohibitively high or, yeah. I, I totally agree that it's just laziness for what you said, Jessica, and always had a bone to pick with that concept of culture fit, especially being an anthropologist, because I know they have no idea what they're talking about when they say culture fit. <laughs> um, because the, the reality is culture is shared experiences. So if you want to have a certain culture, you're supposed to share those experiences with the people you have there, not I go find people who are like me, that's not creating a culture. So even if they wanted to use this whole university model, what they should acknowledge is that usually when you go to university, you have like a welcome week or something where all the freshmen have an opportunity to get to know each other in some sort of social fashion. And they indoctrinate you with whatever your university stuff is. And then even if you come from different places and you have different backgrounds, you all have this thing now that you share together. That's what you should be doing when you're talking about creating culture fit. You should be going and finding different people and then bringing them to your you know, company X and saying, OK, now you're part of us. And this is what it means for you to be all one group. And you give them something to latch on to instead of being lazy and say, well, you already have to have it because I have no idea how to make it because that doesn't really exist because I don't do anything except for what I do. That is Astrid's truth bomb for the day. Spectacular. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to mention an article I saw recently in the uh, Harvard Business Review uh, where uh, some researchers had sent out resumes to uh, top law firms, and they would vary the gender of the applicant and some of the uh, like extracurricular activities and personal interests that gave different clues as to their class. So like for... Some people, they would say that they were on the sailing team in college, and for others, they would say they were doing like the relay team in track and field. Mm-hmm. And those and, you know, that and the gender were the only things they changed. And surprise, surprise, they found that people with the higher class markers uh, got more callbacks. Wow. Wait a minute. Are you trying to say there's bias in hiring processes, Sam? Because this is huge. That is exactly what I am saying. <laughs> Mind wow. boggling. Yeah. So speaking of Facebook. That's sad. <laughs> That's really, really sad. Yeah, I don't know if um, anyone saw the Facebook article, but um, it was in Bloomberg, I believe. And they initially had made a statement about not being able to impact diversity in their organization because of the pipeline. And then yeah, like, there's up... no skill for there. Like they, they were saying there's no skills. Like they couldn't find, find people in that field that had the skill for it. Which... Yeah, right. that was their that was their initial claim. And their, their diversity numbers are atrocious. They're 84% male. 
predominantly white. It's really, really bad. And then it came out that diverse candidates were getting in the door, but that they were being turned away in later interviews for culture fit reasons. Even though they had been incentivizing recruiters to find more uh candidates who weren't well represented at the company. Um, and I'm actually reading directly from the article here. Yeah. During the final stages, it says here, the decision makers were risk averse, often declining the minority candidates. So they specifically solved their pipeline problem and surprise, surprise, that didn't fix their hiring problem. It's never the pipeline. Uh, Again, mind boggling. <laughs> yeah. And, and there it is. It plays exactly off what Astrid said. People are looking for others who already share their experiences instead of building experiences together. Did I get that right? I once, I yeah. once worked on a team that had more people named Blaine than it had female engineers. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Whoa. Yeah. How many Blaines is that? <laughs> there were two Blaines and one female engineer. Okay. Yeah, that reminds me of an old uh, New York Times article from 2003 about somebody's observation of basically the same thing, but they called it the Dave to girl ratio. Wow. Wow. Like as we were, you know, talking about this and like we're seeing this issue in the hiring practices, this is like it's a huge, huge, huge problem because not only is it like finding them and getting them into the door is also something that I think like we don't really talk much about is how to keep them to stay at the company. Yes. Like maintaining that. Yeah. As I talk to my other peers of like minorities, that is also something that we like talk like, you know, sometimes I don't feel like I fit in or like, you know, we just feel awkward or we don't feel comfortable and that makes us unhappy and we want to go somewhere else. And we're like, you know, this is a problem that needs to be fixed. So this whole um, diversity issue, it's, it's not something that you could put a Band-Aid on at all. Like absolutely not. Like this is has to be a hundred percent effort, whether it's on the policy level, with like what we do in Congress over here, or you know, within the company, like it has to be from the very beginning all the way to the very end. Like seeing people, uh minorities, uh women, people of color, women in leadership positions, like that goes a long way for me, especially for me, able to see like, oh, we have a woman senior lead developer. That means I feel like I can get there someday. Like I, there's no glass yeah. ceiling here. Like it can be done based off her skills and stuff. So it's a huge problem. But that's why we talk about diversity and inclusivity because one without the other doesn't make any damn sense. Right. Yeah. Inclusivity. We have to bring those people who are different from us into shared experiences with us. Is there anything that the people at your company do? This is a question for all of the women on this call, and especially the women of color. Is there anything that the people at your company do that helps with that feeling of belonging? I do a lot of like going out events. When I would say going out, like, okay, of course, lunch, that's like a typical thing. But we also have like Fridays, play Mario Margaritas. <laughs> Anybody who's willing to stay afterwards on Friday, we could like just go to the back conference room and play Mario Kart and just have margaritas. Like that helps with like bringing everyone together and having fun and being comfortable. Um, also attending meetups together. That's like one thing that we do to bring everyone together and, um, just like having an open environment. Like everyone here, like pretty much meshed very well together. At GitHub, there's an annual women's summit for women employees. Um, wow. And that's like the official thing that gets done. There are also like unofficial women's lunches. And, um, of course, dedicated Slack channels. We have a women-only channel. We have a tech women channel. 
So if you're looking for a code review from someone who's maybe going to be a little bit more empathetic, um, you can ask in the, um, the women tech, um, channel first. Um, and there's a queer channel and there's a trans channel. Um, so there's, there are unofficial channels for this, these sorts of things. But I think one of the kind of coolest and strangest things that I noticed about GitHub is that the women's restroom on the second floor where engineering sits, there are post-it notes and stickers and markers. And all of the bathroom stalls are filled with post-it notes and stickers and little messages of encouragement and counting how many women are at the company and asking questions and complaining about management. And just, it's this really strange open forum for like sharing different things about your experience as a woman at GitHub. And it's, it's so there's really an cool. asynchronous anonymous bathroom channel. That is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Oh, I like that. Wow. Also, I'd like to add one more thing. We also have one of our senior leaders, Jessica King. She actually has at least every three months or every like five months meets up with every female woman engineer at the company. And she has lunch with us and just to figure out like, you know, how's everything going? How do you feel? Okay, like those one on one Yes, and that's like and she's very, very busy. So it's like, you know, this is like that's a lot and that's really great that like we have someone like that there who's championing for us within the company. That's awesome. Um I can say that from my experiences, um, not even just being a developer, but also often working in very male dominated industries, it's usually the little things that make me feel included, like saying hello to me every day or, you know, talking to me and asking me questions and listening to me when I reply back to you, because the stuff that makes me feel not included is, you know, if you walk by me every day, but you don't ever say hi, or if you all go out to lunch, but you never invite me, like you don't always have to have a huge initiative. I think if you have a company where people are encouraged to get to know each other, it can go a long way with helping people who might not be like everybody else feel more included. I want to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our supporters, Colin Bruce. Thank you very much for your patronage. Greater Than Code is 100% listener funded. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, please go to patreon.com slash greater than code, pledge at any level, and you'll get access to our patron-only Slack channel where you can ask guest questions, suggest new guests, and talk about what we have covered on different episodes. I had one more question. One thing that you mentioned at the very beginning of the show, Zuri, was that you signed up to lead the Ruby on Rails course meetings. Yeah, so the, the Ruby and Rails meetups for Women Who Code. You signed up to lead those as you were just starting to learn Rails. That's really brave. I blame Kaylin for that. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what happened. Um, as I was like explaining to Kaylin, um, she was the director of the, the DC chapter for Women Who Code at the time. She's like, I was telling her, like, yeah, I'm, you know, teaching myself Ruby and Rails. And also, she's like, awesome. That's amazing. You should run it just like that. And I'm like, uh, I'm stuck right there. I'm like, uh, I don't know. And she's like, no, you're good. You're smart. You can do this. You can definitely do this. You can run the Ruby on Rails meetup. And I was like, you know what? Shoot, why not? Because <laughs> uh, when you teach, you also learn on top of that. So, yes, it was very nerve-wracking, first word. First, very nerve-wracking because, like, you know, the I'm very critical of myself. So I'm like, oh my God, like everyone here is going to think I'm stupid because I don't know like, you know, how to solve this error or whatnot. And I'm sure someone in here like knows Ruby and Rails more than me. Like they should be doing this, like not me. Like yeah, a lot of those 
thoughts are going through my head, but I just threw myself out there and admit that I had to stay in my AK, read up on it before every meetup and try to grow that meetup. So nice. it, 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 yeah, it was, it was like very, very nerve wracking. Did oh you God. have help? Did you have <laughs> yeah. people who were more experienced to fall back on? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I was not by myself when I was running this meetup. Um, actually, Ooh. I had uh, a Mura, Amy. She was also learning to be very aroused with me, but she has some like programming background. So it's like really easy, like to piggyback off of her because, you know, she was like really good at like errors. And she had a different way of learning too, which is really, really cool. Like she likes to, um, have the thing be built already and she takes it apart to see how like the mechanics work. So that's what she was doing with the one month rails. Like she had it done already, or I think she took like the final code base and started taking things apart to see how like the code works and how like, you know, how to create a pin and stuff like that, just to figure out like how that works. So she had an interesting way of like building stuff and was very good at solving errors. So definitely um, had her to like piggyback off whenever we came across something that I had no clue about. It helps when someone says, you can do this. And also it helps when you're not by yourself. Yes, yes. The you can do this part, definitely. Because, yeah, Kaylin has really been definitely pushing me. Like, everyone within the women's whole community has definitely been pushing me. Like, you can do this. You're smart. You're, you're really great. Like, you should, this should be no problem with you doing this at all. Like, don't doubt yourself. So that's, that's going to be my reflection of the day. I'll just pop us right into reflections. So at the end of the show, we like to go around and say, what did you learn today? What did you find particularly interesting? And this is mine because there were so many people who helped you in small ways. Your professors pushing you to go to the hackathon. Uh, your MIS professor somehow influenced you to go into CIS as your major. There were the people at Women Who Code DC, who made you feel welcome, and Kaylin, who said, you can do this, and Amy, I think it was, who was helping you with the Ruby on Rails workshop, and then there's your team at the hackathons, and you did this. You kept pushing through all discouragements and kept learning. The other thing that I really noticed was that through all of this, you're like, well, I learned something, so it must be good. Right. (laughs) Absolutely right. I was like, well growing pain. It must be painful. But that's what I try to do. Everything I go through, I at least try to learn something out of it. Yeah. Because then you come out as stronger person. Sam wants to call these, these things, micro kindnesses or micro affection. I'm going to go with micro mentoring. Yes. That's the perfect word. Micro mentoring. I like that. Nice. We should, we need to make this a thing like micro mentoring. Yeah. Cause we can all do that. It doesn't take formality. It's these little things that add up. That kind of leads into my big takeaway from this, and that is that, um, Zuri, you were very fortunate to have those sorts of supportive people and support networks around you. So I think that there are things that more senior developers can do to create those opportunities for micro-mentorship, to create those support networks, create those structures that will give new people the ability to, to get through all the no's and to find the yes and to find those learning experiences. So I'm going to be thinking about how, as a more senior person, I can foster those sorts of environments. Cool. I, I would like to um, add on to that because um, I just recently, recently got like a formal mentor, which I'm really excited about. But with, with that interview that was like conducted on me like last year, 
I actually decided to like, okay, make sure if anyone asks me questions or like I come across like it's a, a junior developer that's asking all these questions, stuff like that. I try to like reach out to them like privately and be like, hey, how's everything going? What you're learning and all that good stuff and try to like, you know, figure out what their goals are and then like give them direction of like, okay, or give them some or point it to connecting with someone that I know that can probably help them out. And then hopefully like build that relationship, like just connect that piece. So if I, I know someone who's like trying to study Ruby and the Rails and all that stuff, and I was reflecting on the things I wish I had knew or things I wish I had done back then. Cause there, I mean, although it's been great on this journey, but there are a lot of things I wish I'd done differently back then. But, um, I tried to at least like connect with her at least whenever I could get a chance, like every two or three weeks and be like, Hey, like, how's everything going? Uh, what you do so far? What you're studying? You know, let's set these goals and stuff. Or like you try to do a simple algorithm pro- problem with her every single time we like meet up or talk. So like, hey, let's do a Fizbiz buzz or a palindrome or some sort. But I feel like if any scene does can do anything simple as that, like just simply meet up with them or send a message every two, three weeks, like, hey, how's everything going? You know, you should check out this material or, you know, are you having any issues with your current projects? Like that would be really, really helpful for them. Because it, it shows like people out there, like they're rooting for them and want them to get better. So the reflection that I have from our conversation today was to use hackathons as a way to try new things. I know in the past when I've gone to hackathons, I've usually been working on something. So I'm not really thinking about trying out new stuff. But I really liked what you talked about earlier, Zuri, about as you were interested in new technologies, then you would go to a hackathon and see how you could use it. And I think that's a really great idea about not just getting out there and trying other stuff, but also meeting people who are already good at it. And that could help with getting you more excited about it and keeping you interested and also getting a chance to see more about what your skills are. Because one of the things I struggled with in the beginning was, you know, there's so much technology and I didn't know exactly what I was interested in. And it was hard to figure that out on your own because everyone just tells you to try things, but you don't know what you're doing. So it seems like going to a hackathon to try it out is really a great way to get started. One of my takeaways is actually uh, even a little bit more 101 than what you were just talking about, Astrid. Uh, I think I had just sort of reflexively been poo-pooing the entire idea of hackathons. And so maybe what I should do is just try to go and hang out at one, like maybe go for the pitch session and then come by for a couple hours the following day and just like hang out and see what people are doing and if anybody feels like chatting. Because yeah, that's that's something that it sounds like I've been missing out on. So that's really cool. And the the other thing that, I, that I'm going to take away from this is just the power of post-its because that idea of having post-its and pens in the bathroom is just absolutely amazing. That sounds wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Zuri. This has been uh, a really interesting and useful and, and uh, educational conversation. And uh, we've really enjoyed having you on the show. So thank you for taking the time to join us and talk to us. Oh, great. And thank you for having me. Like, this is really exciting and, and a very insightful conversation. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye.